Real quick before we start the show, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be awesome. November 10th and 11th, Santa Monica, California. Do hope to see you there. You can go to PacificBitcoin.com to buy tickets. Use promo code CAFE for a discount. In the words of Michael Saylor, it is going to be the Bitcoin event of the year. VIP gets you into everything, including the VIP party as well as the VIP rap party. Of course, GAA gets you all kinds of cool stuff as well, and there's going to be plenty of events and things to do. I hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Alex, would you be open to a karaoke contest with Stefan Levera? I don't know about a contest. I might do the karaoke right, thing. Let's now. just do karaoke for fun. Yeah, it sounds fun. Yeah, maybe Tuesday night. Because I think there's nothing really planned Tuesday night at Pacific Bitcoin yet that I know of. Yeah, that would be the ideal night because that gives us recovery time <laughs> before a conference. What, uh, what song would yeah. you choose, Terrence and Alex? Um, oh, obviously, Leather and Lace. I think we need to do a duet. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But I think I, I just want to wow. hear, because I, I saw Stefan in Riga, and we almost got him out for karaoke, but did not. But I keep hearing about this famous voice, which I'm sure is true, because he has an excellent kind of podcast voice. And allegedly, he's a great singer, but I need to verify. <clears throat> I believe that. I don't claim to be a great singer, yeah. but no, I'd do it just for the laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. All right. We are. Good morning, everybody, by the way. Kathy Bitcoin, <clears throat> excuse me, episode 202 Pacific Bitcoin is now 20 days away. You guys excited yet? I can't wait. And thank you uh, to Neil and everybody else, Tomer, you, Alex, uh, Terrence, for uh, the showing up to that block party last night. That was a great time. A lot of fun guests. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I had a great time. So if you haven't seen that, go check it out on YouTube. But that got me fired up to go to 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 the conference for sure. Alex, you you need to send me the uh, timestamp where where the panel is that you're on. I saw Terrence and Corey. I haven't seen some of the others. <laughs> I guess it was about a, an hour in or something like that. I thought that the, I didn't get to see all of them, but uh, the one with Terrence and Corey, I think was probably one of the best. Like that was really funny. Yeah. I, I don't know if you guys could tell. I felt blindsided by the question about wall street versus 
uh, Bitcoin, like what the difference is. I thought I was going to get the same question that Jeff and Corey got, which was like, oh, what's your favorite book or essay? No, it would be too easy. <laughs> I thought, yeah, well, they got those questions. I felt it was... Uh, it was good though. I'm glad they did it. I hope I. I'd, I'd have to okay. tell you, Terrence. I think most of the guests were a little surprised because uh, I could have done a little bit better job saying, "Hey, you're coming in for 15 minutes. It's a rapid fire." But it was uh, Nico was very creative. We all had a lot of fun, and like yeah, the, the Brian Armstrong thing, I thought was hilarious when he, oh, when you put that out. One. That was so yeah. funny to me. <laughs> But yeah, I think that Neil came good. in and was that like, was "What? What's going on?" I was like, "I'm sorry, you're here for 15 minutes. We're going to ask you some questions." So. I thought the question about the temperature of the steak was good because you know I watched that was funny. The first 20 minutes of it, and no one gave a temperature. They're like, "I don't know what temperature," but I, <laughs> so I, I'm gonna I have, have to no I'm idea. gonna have to look that up because I'm like, "Okay, what temperature gives you a you know medium well or whatever?" <laughs> a perfect steak, right? Exactly. You have to be a true carnivore to know things like that. I just feel like, like with steaks, you want to um, have it at high temperature initially to seal in the juice and then lower it. Um, oh, Terrence, you have so much to learn. Se searing the steak doesn't actually seal in the juices. But you have to well, sear it. Well, that's after, after you salt it, right, overnight. <laughs> No, okay. don't, I'm going to stop talking and embarrassing myself. I, I hope to God that's not what you're doing to your steaks. I just supervise uh, the restaurant and I tell them to do it rare plus. Sometimes they don't know what that is. And I have to be like, that's between rare and medium rare. I used to say rare to medium rare. Then um, a, a waitress was like, oh, you mean rare plus? I was like, oh, yeah, rare plus. Cool. Yeah, to what you were saying, Lauren, you definitely want to sear the steak, but that's just for presentation and flavor purposes. It doesn't actually seal oh. in any juices. Uh, and, and there's Damn a it. technique called reverse sear where you actually roast the steak first, get it cooked to the, your temperature that you like, and then sear it at the very end. And it works just yeah. like ah, okay. traditional That actually seems to make more sense because if you if you sear it first, you're not going to – and then you try to slow – you're not maybe not going to get the heat all the way through as good. I don't know. But I don't want the heat all yeah. the way through. <laughs> it, it turns, I want it to kind of rare inside. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that work, <laughs> but, um, but there's also a lot of myths. But this isn't a this isn't a space is about how to make a steak. It is now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so have you guys had a Pittsburgh style, where it's like seared black on the outside and like rare on the inside you know so funny uh, christopher that's, uh, that's what he said me. that's what his his answer was to his steak black and blue uh, okay all right just don't grill it i think that's the worst i think you ruin it when you grill it what do you mean yeah. by grill because i, oh I can God. have great grilled steak more steak Not cooking controversy now, are, you, are you talking like grilled over a charcoal fire or, or yeah, wood fire like, yeah, like on a grill. Like it, it, I think it ruins it. I think you got to do it on a on a pan. Wow. Are you serious? Controversy. Yeah. You, I'm wow. so serious. Wow. She's but got it. I mean, you can you can get a great That's... steak in a pan, but and many and we can debate what kind of pan, obviously, because we're bitcoiners. But Lauren, <laughs> Lauren would make an outstanding tenth man. The tenth man. She has to I'm... disagree. Yeah. I make a great steak, though. Just don't grill it. I think you'll ruin it. What kind Many of steaks? Do you use? 
Yeah, clearly, Lauren is from the wrong part of the country. Please excuse her. I require proof. Are you on one of the coasts? Proof of stake. I require proof of stake, Lauren. I'll, I'll put proof of I got a picture of my stake, and it's. Like I don't want a secret. picture. I'm yeah. saying you have to make me stake sometimes. Yeah, I'll, I'll make you stake, and you'll love it, and then okay. it'll just melt in your mouth. Oh, we're free. I heard tonight. Pacific Bitcoin. I heard she microwaves her steaks. Oh, come on now. That's what you do, Andreas. <laughs> that's messed up. She cooks, she cooks it in water. I know, that's, oh, that's messed up. Boiled steak. Gross. Oh. Uh, you, know, you know what's funny, guys? Like, I'm from, hot seed oil. I'm from Venezuela, and people over there think that eating rare meat or if with any pink is like raw and like people just love eating their meat like char to like <laughs> to oblivion and it's the saddest thing ever when whenever i went back and i would just like show my cousins how i like my my steak he, they were like you're disgusting like <laughs> and i was like no dude you just don't know what you're doing you're killing the the meat yeah all right that's 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 enough about steak. <laughs> I figure the first five to ten minutes is is okay. You can kind of free for all, whatever. It's all yeah. good. Let's talk about some Bitcoin stuff. I mean, some some Bitcoiners might argue that that steak is Bitcoin, but it's one of those things. Um, right. So first article up for today: Elon Musk reportedly plans to lay off the majority of Twitter employees. He has told investors he plans to cut nearly 75% of the workforce if he takes control of the company. So I hate wow. Twitter. I, I own that stock, lost a lot of money uh, back in my fiat days, which was not long ago. And I lived across the street from it. And what was very frustrating was their sales building they have two buildings on 10th and market in san francisco their sales building i had a direct view and it was never occupied and so frustrating as a shareholder to see that building in expensive real estate because it's right next to twitter and uber not occupied it was like maybe occupied like one tenth or one twentieth of what it could be and i was like just sublease it i got so frustrated i took a picture and sent it to the wall street journal but of course, they didn't do anything. Maybe they were yeah, they're horribly managed. <laughs> horribly managed. So hold on, this is this, this. I don't know what this, they do. This tweet from from uh, Elon has already been uh, discounted. So I mean, the the news services have already talked about that that it's not actually what he's doing. You don't. You don't think he's gonna he lies? Somebody has a horrible idea. Neil, Neil's got it. Neil or take the ride. No, I don't. I, I, this was going on before. Yeah, I made it. Neil sounds good. Uh, it's take, it's take the, ride. the ride. Take the ride. You sound like you're in a teeny weeny little box. So, so like that the, that thing about him cutting seventy five percent of the workforce is not true, Peter. Yeah, correct. That's that's what that's what the that's what the news organizations are saying. And it makes sense to me. I mean, it would be just classic Elon to put something like that out. And of course, everybody at Twitter then 
you know, is scrambling to ensure that they're not one of the 75% to leave. I mean, it's just classic Elon, right? Oh, he's yeah, trolling, actually. trolling the company he's buying. I never actually said that. <laughs> but you guys better get your shit together. Wow. Interesting. They need more people to control the bot problem. I don't know but why they're firing Wouldn't people. the motivation then be that the existing 100% of people are going to hire another 300% more people who are going to then be the 75% that are on the chopping block? How am I now, guys? Is this okay? Yeah, you're, yeah, you're fine. Yes, you're no longer in a teeny-weeny little box. There's been report for years that a lot of the people at Twitter do no work. And I think yeah. Karen's point about sales, you can, I mean, if you've been paying attention at all to the advertisements you're getting pumped, um, you can tell that a majority of them are, you know, um, value neutral or either just promote paid promoted from other Twitter users. They're not actually like from a broad spectrum that you can account from like uh, statistics and metrics of user clicks. Like I'm not seeing very many conservative uh, branded advertisements. I'm seeing mainly, you know, mainstream or left leaning advertisements. I think there's a large spectrum. This, this includes YouTube as well, where you're missing out on a lot of like you could target ads at conservatives that, are neutral but they're just they just happen to be conservative like gun companies or uh like any 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 kind of thing dude what you're you're speaking heresy right now that's so that's so blasphemous like they can't allow a gun company advertiser to to advertise on a platform like twitter what is wrong with you goodness you need to go read stop nate go back and read the woke Employee handbook again. Read it again because you missed there that part. Are over 16 yeah, you million need firearms. There are over 16 million firearms sold each year for the past six years. I know Democrats are buying guns. <clears throat> Sounds like they don't need to advertise. They need to do something. The bot problem is really, really crazy. It's like you can't, it's not like. It used to be like, you know, they'd be on the really big accounts, they'd be all sprinkled there. But now it's like you go almost to any conversation and it's full of bots. It's like, you know, you got to scroll through all these bots just to find the real people talking. It's crazy. I'm so sorry that I told you that that was what was going on, Alex. No, it's all right. I mean, that's good. That's what we do here, right? I mean, we... This place is the crucible. If something, if somebody throws something out there that's not correct, I I hope someone corrects it because this is about signal, not nonsense. At the same time, I would not be surprised if he does clean house. Like whether he said seventy five percent or not, it should be ninety. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I hate that place. No, how, terrible. Much, how much money did you lose, do. Terrence? Uh, Terrence, you that know, much. You it's more that it's more Stop. that they had so much upside. There was so much opportunity, and they blew it because back then, you know, Facebook was not doing as well, and the the gap between Facebook and Twitter just widened like ridiculous. You do want your sales building empty. You want your salespeople out selling. Then rent out the fucking building. That was my right. point. I agree, but then rent it out, right? Like. 
don't that's, know. That's Some not of these sales they just are mostly doing advertising. Phones. They would be in the building. Tell me, I believe. Yeah, that's I was true. just yeah, going to say like that's not how sales works today. I should call it the engineering building. You knock on doors with the vacuum cleaner. What what am I missing? Anyway, yeah, that was that was that was like. That was like 50 years ago, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All the other outside salespeople in the audience are like broken dreams right now. The other report that I saw based on this was that it would affect user experience. I, they, they complained uh, the other day that we cultivate our own experience through who we follow, who we like, who we block. All, we do it ourselves a lot of the time. So who would necessarily be harmed by this? I, I think their presumption is that letting you manage your user experience is what is suboptimal. They, they know better than you yeah, what you should see. That's also in the woke employee handbook that you didn't read, Nate. All right, more, more Elon Musk drama. I mean... I know a lot of people hate Elon Musk. Some of this stuff is pretty important. Why? Because Twitter, I think, is super, super important to human culture. Just my opinion. I could be be completely wrong. I I know that. Well, what is the what is the user count on Twitter? It's in the hundreds of millions, right? Somebody know? Uh, that's including the bots. Hard, hard to say. Yeah, it's really hard to say. Okay, total Elon, Elon user count. Out. Is like maybe four hundred ish million, I think. Um, yeah. And yeah. and so, like, if if let's be conservative, let's say <laughs> a quarter of that is bots. I think it's a lot more, <laughs> even if it was. So we have a three hundred. Let's call it three hundred million actual human beings that use Twitter. So it's 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 a small microcosm of the world, basically. Um, but I feel like it has an outsized impact on on the direction of the human race am i wrong in that am i like am i being hyperbolic i don't know i i think facebook is not i, I think, yeah because you're right i, I was gonna say I, no sorry, finish your I, point sorry didn't mean to cut you off i was gonna say i think you're right because i mean you see any like you know news article or or uh, thing that pops up and it's always with a tweet you know it's like you see you know a tweet Tweets are everywhere, regardless of whether or not you're on Twitter. You're seeing them, and they form a lot of opinions um, outside of Twitter as well. Yeah, so they're, say. they'll they're say used. like Twitter users said, or just some very vague number of, and, and use it as a qualifying source. Well, you see tweets all the time in articles now, like you know, as if they're sources and they're 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 basically supportive evidence of something, right? So what does that mean? I mean, does does Twitter have um, a higher concentration of the types of people in our society who end up leading where we're going? I don't know what that all means, but I mean, there's something there. Well, it's fringe, isn't it? It's 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 those that need to to share their thoughts and argue and do all these other things. And no, you can't talk wicked. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no yeah sorry we keep on button heads here but no i was just gonna say um uh yeah yeah i mean i think it's 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 an easy platform for you know influencers and, and 
people who are important in the world to get out their quick ideas. I just want to like, you know, tweet them out quickly and get feedback and, you know, get these ideas out. And then that's kind of the, the source of truth and the reference for all other, you know, articles and whatnot further uh, downstream. Yeah. So, so I feel like this is just my, my personal opinion. I don't have any empirical data to, to base this on, but I feel like the, the conversations on Twitter have a, have an outside impact on sort of the direction and the culture of, of at least Western countries. And then, and then that kind of like emanates throughout the world, so to speak. So that's the reason why. So, it, so to me, it's kind of a strategic thing. So is Starlink which, by the way, brings up this next point. So Elon Musk's deals may face national security reviews. The Biden administration is uncomfortable with the tweets the SpaceX CEO has made about Russia's war with Ukraine and his uncompensated support of Starlink in the region, Bloomberg reports. So before I dig deeper into this thing, you know, when I started seeing some of the bullets in this article, I was thinking, wow, these are really interesting points. And then I read the entire article in, in sort of in its entirety. And, the, and in context, I realized a lot of this is propaganda. So we're going to, I'm going to go through it anyway. And I'm going to point out where I think there's propaganda. You guys can give your own opinions on that. Um, so officials within the Biden administration are discussing whether some of Elon Musk's business ventures should be subjected to national security reviews, including his takeover bid for Twitter, like I said, possibly strategically important, I don't know, and operation of his Starlink network of sat satellites. By the way, Starlink I've always considered strategically important, and whoever controls that network is going to have a hell of a lot of power in the future, if indeed it does blanket every, every inch of the earth with internet coverage, right? U.S. officials are uncomfortable with Musk's suggestion that he will stop supplying the Starlink satellite service to war-turned Ukraine and never, that he says is costing him $80 million and he's not being paid for it. That's interesting to me because, first of all, you know, the government's basically saying you must use your private resources and pay to uh, provide internet service to our war basically, because I don't consider it my war. Um, like, I'm not trying to say anything bad about the suffering and everything that's going on over there. My heart goes out to those people. But, like, I'm American. Ukraine is not America, right? They're their own country. So, so there's I, that going on. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to ask you, um, as a former Special Forces um, operator, how much special how much u s special forces is in Ukraine? How much influence are we having at that level if you had to guess? Are you asking me if I'm a okay, let me make something clear. I'm not former special forces. Oh, sorry, fuck yeah, some people might might have that idea. That's the I did not do s f um and I have no idea the answer to your question Terrence. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, I have another can I ask another question? Sure. Real quick. So um, as a former U.S. military, and thank you for your service, um, if you had a guess, like when, when you were in these other, I don't know what countries you, you served in, um, but um, if you had a guess, like 
what would be a compelling enough reason for um, U.S. involvement in Ukraine that would be compelling to like a typical U.S. military type person? I think most guys in the military don't think too broadly about that stuff. Depends on how, like, if you're when you're a young dude, you're just in there. Yeah, you know, you're you're doing what you're told. You you haven't really pulled your head far enough out of your butt to figure out (laughs) that there's political things going on. I mean, you might sense, you know, the things that you sense right off the bat as a younger dude in the military is uh, whether whether the administration actually gives a crap about you because that matters. You know, you don't want to go fight and die and have body parts blown off for a bunch of people who really don't give a crap about you and are driven by things other than what's right and good. I think, like our, and this is just my opinion, I think our military has been very weakened by the policies going on right now. I think um, we've been gutted. I think most of the good guys have chosen to get out. I think that there are some guys who are hanging on but like the number of guys, in my opinion, who they have the warrior mindset, not just the drone mindset. So let me clarify that by saying drones to me are, are guys that are like jackboots. They're going to do whatever you tell them, even if it's evil, even if it's wrong, even if, you know, it's, it's just wrong. They won't, they'll do it. The good guys, the warriors, ha- actually have a conscience. They think about stuff. And, and <clears throat> it weighs on them when they're asked to do things that are immoral or unjust. And for uh, immoral and unjust causes. So I personally feel like our militaries, the U.S. military in particular, has been purged and is in the process of continuing to be purged. I, th- I personally think, and this is just me, this is probably going to get this show flagged, I don't give a shit, that the whole Vax thing was a, an instrument to purge the military because you got, you got the ones. Oh, who are, yeah. You got the ones who are super compliant. Like they're like, okay, go for it, man. And then you've got all the guys, the warriors who think about stuff. They're like, yeah, fuck no, I ain't doing that. <laughs> Huge. Well, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but there are all kinds of lawsuits going on with seals who are like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing that. And the government was trying to make them do it. So, so they're getting rid of the conscientious ones, the ones who will, you know, if they're given an order, you know, yeah, it's okay. Go ahead and fire on the U.S. population. It's, it's all good. They're getting rid of the ones who are like, yeah, fuck no, I ain't going to do that. They're getting rid of the, 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 non, the non-mindless obeyers in the military. And that's not a good thing. Military recruitment is at its lowest point in 50 years. Yeah, nobody wants to join. They're doing all these woke fucking ads. Like, have you seen the advertisements that are using to try to get people to join the military? It's insane. It's insane. And then you've got all these people. I've seen these articles where people are like, yeah, um, it's okay. Like, you know, maybe we need a more thoughtful, a more, uh, you know, a military with a heart. You want these guys who have a heart. They care. And what they're really doing is they're getting all these, these woke dudes in that push come to shove again this is just my opinion if the u.s has a major war we're screwed these guys are not war these guys are not war fighters they're not there 
there was a video last year, uh, Angry Cops put it out, and he was criticizing PT because um, there was a video that, that was put out. There's, I think, propaganda or something. They were trying to show, like, the new changes were ethical and so on and so forth. And they're going through the PT, and they're giving them water breaks and things like that. And then this colonel or general, or I, don't, I don't remember specifically, walks over, and he's interviewing one of the new uh, recruits in PT. And uh, he asks him, what do, you, what do you think of this? And there's a drill sergeant standing right there. And he goes, uh, I think it's a joke, sir. Uh, I, I expected uh, some some level of difficulty here, and it yeah. was just because they were they were walking around. They were not working hard. They were and the, and the games the games that get played by these kids is is they they act like they they just they look. I'm not going to say <laughs> when I when I was a young dude in the military, we were all dumbasses. You know, we did stupid stuff. We got in trouble for it. All that other kind of stuff. But there, there's an all new level of of ridiculousness going on. I'm going to tell you a quick story. This is completely off topic, but I think it bears on where we're going with this. It's off topic to Bitcoin, but. Anyway, so quick story. So my girl's brother is a U.S. Marine. He was stationed over in Japan. Um, and so this is the kind of stuff that goes on nowadays, right? He's, he's in the barracks with two other guys. And they're young dudes, right? One of these guys starts a fight with him, right? And he defends himself. So, like, you know, he's choking this dude out. The other roommate starts recording it. And the two basically send it up the chain of command and they're saying, hey, look at this guy. He instigated this thing. And when he, when the guy who started the fight asked him to stop, he wouldn't. And it was just like this thing of aggression, right? And they framed him, basically. Wow. <laughs> okay. Let, let me tell just from my perspective, that is one of the biggest pussy moves I've ever witnessed in my life. Why? Well, they're Marines. They're supposed to fight. They're trained to fight. We used to fight each other all the freaking time. Nobody's bitching and whining and tattletailing up the tail of command. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? Sorry. I mean, that just gets me a little like, what is wrong with you guys? And so here's the thing. Like, you know, this is what I've noticed doing this show. When I talk about my military experiences, some of these younger guys who are a little, little more fragile, they're a little more soft. They like to fucking talk shit about me. They're like, oh, we think you guys, you were, you were a desk jockey or, or you weren't like infantry or whatever. Fuck you guys. I did my thing. You know, like who's getting, who's getting um, their butt hurt by what I'm saying. I'm going to guess that it's the, the little girls in the military nowadays. Not, not, you know, the kind of guys I served with. So screw off. I don't know where that came from. No, it's all good, man. <clears throat> anyway, so let's continue with this article. This this thing blows my mind. So this there's the Starlight thing. Um, they go on to say, while the discussions are at an early stage, one possibility the U.S. government and intelligence community have for reviewing Musk's business ventures is through the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS, a secretive government panel that reviews mergers that could result in a foreign company controlling an American business. CFIUS review is often enough to squash a deal. This is this thing blows my mind right here. 
I'll tell you why. I used to work with this guy named Jim Rickards. Some of you may have heard of him. He was on CFIUS. He was part of that review board. They What they would do is if there was a deal where there was a potential foreign investment in a U.S. company, they would review that to see if it was a national security issue because you don't want to have like, you know, your adversaries owning critical American infrastructure, right? So he would review these deals, right? And he would point out on some of them, especially the ones that were put forward by interests with maybe the Clinton family, for example, or something like that. Interestingly enough, when he said, hey, these things are probably dangerous, we shouldn't be doing them, he got fired from that group for, for pointing that stuff out. Makes you wonder. Has CFIUS now been corrupted? Is it now this thing where it's going to be used against, um, uh, you know, American entrepreneurs to say, hey, you can't do this, or you can't do that because we think it's a national security threat. But if we want to sell off U.S. companies to our adversaries and we have some kind of backdoor um, sweetheart deal, now it's okay. Now it's okay. Like, man, this stuff kind of just blows me away. Um, yeah, anyway, and I guess they're, they're trying to make the point that, that Musk is pro Putin. Here's the last one that, that irritated me, the propaganda in this Musk, the world's richest person has taken to a Twitter in recent weeks to suggest proposals favorable to Russian president, Vladimir Putin to ending Russia's war with Ukraine. That is so political. That is so political. He's basically said, let's not nuke each other off the surface of the earth. That's what he said. Yeah, they're trying they're trying to position it like any sort of narrative of ask of like suggesting that maybe, you know, not killing each other over all this stuff, which because like the war is pretty I wouldn't I won't say nonsensical, but it's just not going anywhere. Like to suggest that like anything as far as like being pro peace is pro Putin, like go to hell. Like fuck. Man, I, I personally I think it's nonsensical. No. I think I think at this point, I think US involvement in all these foreign wars, even in the time that I was in, like for decades and decades, has just been political nonsense. And it goes completely against what the founders of America wanted, to be honest. They said do not get into get involved in entangling alliances and do not engage in nation building, but have commerce with everyone. That's what they said. So what are we doing? Bases in a hundred and hundred plus countries. Like it's the United States empire. I mean, everybody knows it. I'm just saying the the part that people don't want to talk about out loud. Go ahead, wicked. Um, I just put two two things together, uh, two and two together when you were talking there about, um, you know, these reviews of, of you know, foreign entities uh, <clears throat> taking control of critical American infrastructure, right? And, and what I put together was, can you imagine if Bitcoin, and I mean, I, we all believe here when Bitcoin becomes critical U.S. infrastructure, um, kind of like Jay, you know, Jason Lowry talks about whether it's preventing DDoS attacks or, or you know, having some sort of very influential piece, critical piece of cybersecurity, or whether it's just you know, critical payments infrastructure in the United States. I mean, both could be very critical infrastructure. And then, can you imagine what's going to happen when you know some adversary starts mining or stacking sets? 
<laughs> like what you know like the only thing you can do in response you can't you can't prevent them from doing that the way that you can prevent them from investing in a u.s company but the only way you can combat that is to mine yourself or purchase bitcoin yourself right yeah for sure go ahead terrence uh, so I don't think we need to get into conspiracy theories, but prolonging the Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine war definitely helps the U S LNG lobby because they're shipping natural gas overseas to sell to Germany and Europe, the rest of Europe at very high prices instead of, uh, like in the Northeast, um, uh, there's a real possibility that there's going to be a natural gas and energy shortage in the U S. So in my opinion, um, U.S. being energy rich, finally, after all these years, um, we should be giving that energy to Americans first to help our and keep our energy costs down and any excess we can ship overseas instead of the reverse. But I feel like the U.S. LNG lobby is one of the biggest winners in this protracted war. Yes, Terrence, I want cheap gas first. <laughs> Yeah, and Wait, so as like Americans, that. we should get it. It's just like the big pharma sells their drugs at much higher prices to Americans than they do to overseas. Hey, Terrence, how far, how far northeast should I be uh, scared here in Boston? <laughs> well, were, I, I, I don't know. I was just reading some Twitter headlines. Who knows? It's talking about um, energy issues potentially this winter. The ridiculousness, though, is that, like, for the LNG lobby to actually benefit from both sides is to like wheel back the ridiculous EPA regulations and allow for like the collection yeah. and well, generation of natural gas to increase in the U S through oil production, which is part of it. And then like, then we can service both the like new England population and the EU. Yeah. I'm not sure we've invested enough in natural gas pipelines in the u.s i know we have a lot but it seems like it could be substantially better and to your point mike the infrastructure for fossil fuel energies is probably underinvested in by a lot yeah like the benefit is that like since 2015 the u.s has added something like over a hundred thousand miles of like natural gas pipelines but to your point like they, that doesn't include like the the lng um like the refrigeration um um, 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 plants in order to actually produce it to liquid, liquefied form, but then also like the the port authorities and having the tankers and the, the like general technology to be able to ship it overseas. That's a good point. Dumber. Yeah. Well, <laughs> while we're developing new paranoid theories, it just occurs to me that maybe so much of the success of the anti-nuclear movement over the last fifty years. Uh, which nuclear would have provided lots of local power generation anywhere, right? You can set up a nuclear plant just about anywhere, and uh, you don't you don't need it to be located close to a source of anything else. And it doesn't besides need, water. Well, but, but I mean, you can, it doesn't need a lot of water. It's not like a hydrogen, which you need. You need a naturally occurring huge river to you. You can pump water from, uh, to a nuclear plant, but it is. The fact that nuclear didn't um, proliferate 
meant that so many nations and cities all over the world remained dependent on physically imported energy, liquid natural gas, gasoline, coal, all this kind of stuff that had to be physically moved. Moving some sticks of uranium around is, is very, very cheap. And so this hegemony, this worldwide hege military hegemony of the petrodollar has been maintained in part because nuclear did not proliferate and it did not proliferate essentially based on tremendous lies. The notion that it was dangerous, that radioactive leaks could contaminate a whole town. There's been no such events at all throughout the history of nuclear. It's incredibly safe and incredibly cheap and incredibly dense. It just makes you wonder. Tomar, are you suggesting that are you suggesting that Chernobyl did not happen? I mean, no, well, Chernobyl's a, Chernobyl's different. I, oh, like, okay. You know, uh, I just wanted to make sure that yeah. you weren't suggesting that that. Okay. No, I think Chernobyl's kind of this one exception, which is like when you have a completely communist country, and somebody's set something up there, and all the incentives are wrong, you can have a complete deterioration of events and and the kind of lies that take place in a state-owned, communist-run uh, regime. All sorts of terrible things happen in communist countries. People starved to death for lots of reasons uh, that were all avoidable because of how things were managed. So, 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 Tomer, Tomer, I'm yeah. sorry. I, I, I actually agree with you. I just wanted to make sure we we're clear about that because things like Bhopal happen also that have nothing to do with, with, uh, with nuclear energy and, and masses of people get killed, but in an industrial accident. Right, right. I, I, th I think the thing with Cher Chernobyl is. Uh, in, in one way, I, to use the expression, the, the exception that proves the rule, like everywhere else in the world, we, we had like in Japan, Fukushima was hit by the greatest tidal wave in a generation. One person died. A few people got burns. They speculate maybe a couple of people got cancer from it. Meanwhile, the tidal wave itself killed 30,000 people. Right. Wow. And, and so it's just like and people say, oh, my God, we've got to shut down all the nuclear reactors because of a tidal. Well, the tidal wave killed 30,000 people. The impact it had on a, a nuclear reactor was that one person died uh, from the damages that were caused. Like these things are incredibly safe and, and they keep getting safer. And we talk about them. And if you study that, people have heard about Three Mile Island. Nobody died in the, in the Three Mile Island incident. And uh, and so we've we've been there's just been so much so much fear generated and I, like i'm a big advocate of uh really exploring <laughs> so, clean, so one of the one of the problems tomer one of the problems is that with with our current government system is that it is nearly impossible for um politicians to turn around and say hey i was wrong this is not the case and we need to readdress this that's that's really the biggest problem because once they allow the 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 um once they allow public opinion to sway whatever it is they're doing regardless of the of the facts and that's what politicians often do and it's not just on big issues like energy it's on lots of lots of issues uh you know incarceration in the united states for example um is a completely failed uh, uh experiment and um you know Nobody is going to change any of those any of those laws or any of those policies because then they're soft on crime, uh, and so they can't go backwards on it. And I think that's part of the problem is our inability to change our minds publicly about things. Uh, where I come from, that's called dishonesty or sunk cost bias. 
Yeah. I, I will say that Janet Yellen has basically apologized and got destroyed for doing so, although her screw-ups were pretty massive. So I think it's natural. Like when people see that happen, um, politicians, they're not going to get in the habit of apologizing. What they do need to do is change the direction of their stupid policies that are getting people killed or unemployed or destroying our uh, way of life. Well, apologizing is an admission of, of um, guilt. I think those are two different things. That's, that's a, uh, what do they call that in, in legal terms? Oh, um, yeah. Terrence, the, the guilty uh, mind, right? Mens rea. Mens rea. Mens rea. Yeah. yeah. So, I see. I see. So apology versus admitting you made a mistake. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I mean, I don't think there's, there's anything wrong with saying, okay. look, um, this was a mistake. So and this, what is is we, this is what we've learned yeah. and this is how we should do this in the future. Those are different. Do you That's think a fair. guy like Shane Hazel is going to be able to stand up there and do that? I think a guy like Shane Hazel is. I think we just need a different crop of individuals to be involved in politics. I think you're seeing it. I mean, I don't, I don't great. want this to devolve into a political discussion, but I think you're seeing it. I think you're seeing that, that change. Terrence is laughing. He's like, this has been political all along. Not really. I, 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 <laughs> I, look, at, I look at things <laughs> as like freedom, non-freedom. I look at things through that lens. And even though it may seem like some of the subjects I'm talking about are framed as a political, you know, in some political camp, the truth is they're actually pro-freedom, my, my, in my opinion, anyway. And, and my, my belief is, is that there are some people in other political camps that frame those kind of thoughts as political on purpose because they want to control us. And this is not about you know, blue versus red or, you know, colors versus colors. This is about fucking the freedom of the human race to me. You got two camps. You got people who, who want to enslave the population of mankind. This is not a conspiracy anymore. Jesus Christ, people, look around you. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy. It's, this is happening. Yeah. It's, well, and it's 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 funny so, to me that like the term conspiracy theory or even just conspiracy elicits like this response that it's like it's Fugazi or something like conspiring con conspiring just means like working together with another party like that's all it means and like so like mm. there's con there's conspiring going on everywhere yeah we all conspire every day about yeah. coordinating things. colluding coordinating exactly. Yeah, I think um, the conspiracy theories are not conspiracy theories if you look at the incentives. And the incentives are, like, for example, the U.S. LNG lobby is benefiting from the protracted war. Then it stands to reason that they, even if they didn't start it or, or whatever cause it, because they benefit from it, they're going to try to sustain it right behind the scenes. It just makes sense. Yeah, if that lobby is big enough to, to drive that. Although yeah. I'm, I'm don't don't forget the U.S. arms manufacturers. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Are, okay. Right, let's so move one on. question we, I have: Do you guys? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say let's move on to a different topic. I feel like we beat that to All death. Right. But go ahead. Go ahead. I was just wondering if you guys knew the arms sales that we're doing to Ukraine. Are they used U.S. military equipment? That's my understanding. Which is still quite good, but like as some we are, yeah. Some I see are, lots okay. of I see lots of. Um, 
discussion groups amongst active duty guys who are complaining that their armories are being stripped to be to send their wow. equipment over to Ukraine and we're no longer properly equipped. We I mean they're they're removing a lot of That's really insane. important gear that if we the United States were to be I probably shouldn't say this live on there but yeah, whatever. Well, if if the US were I don't think yeah, if the U.S. were to be attacked and, and our units are incapable of, of doing their jobs because they don't have their weapons anymore, that's probably not an ideal situation. Perks of the Second Amendment, guys. Yeah, that's fair. But, I don't know, man. I mean... You... Yeah, we don't have the same weapons. Military. Yeah, AT4s are a little bit harder slash impossible for civilians to get in there. That's hands. what I was just going to say is that it's like, that's like, I agree with that sentiment, but it's like at the end of the day, if your stockpiles of anti aircraft stuff and anti tank stuff is gone, <laughs> you don't stand much of a chance against the enemy, even if you've got, you know, everybody's all got I'm a rifle in their hand. All I'm saying is that Tannerite can do a lot to a refrigerator. <laughs> All right, let, let's hit announcements really quick, and then we'll go into our next our, our next topic here. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. Today's discussion was kind of really all over the place. We do talk about things that intersect with Bitcoin. Um, but to me, a lot of this kind of stuff geopolitically matters because at the end of the day, this is sort of a, a battle for our, our um, control over our own time and our own labor and our own money and, and the way to save. And all these things have ex existential kind of um, influences on that. So anyway, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. It is also a podcast. If you can't catch a live show, because we do this on Twitter spaces every day live, uh, you can catch it on fountain, Spotify and Apple. If you shout it or you boost us on fountain, we will shout out your, whatever it is you're, uh, you're boosting there. Um, Pacific Bitcoin experience. Pacific Bitcoin, November 10th and 11th. Uh, it's going to be uh, in Santa Monica, California. Super excited to, for this thing. It's very, very soon now. It's only like 20 days away. It's less than three weeks. Uh, go to PacificBitcoin.com, promo code CAFE for a discount. Uh, lead sponsors are Leaden Prime Trust. Ibex has stepped up. They're going to be doing um, all the vendors, so all the food vendors and all the um, artists and all that other kind of stuff will be hooked up through Ibex Pay. So you could pay with Lightning to do stuff. Uh, let's hear from Sailor. We'll talk about what the events that are going on. We'll keep rolling. I don't travel to these things very often. Everybody in the Bitcoin world seemed to be there. People reached out to me and said I should come. I didn't really want to miss this. It's going to be the event of the year. year, year. The event of the year. The event of the year. Should be a good time. <laughs> I can't decide if I love or I hate that version. <laughs> you you mean you love it? It's got great things, but it's also like, wow, what was that? Anyway, okay, so things coming up as well during the conference on that Wednesday, Tuesday night.
right. Terrence just said it. We might actually do uh, karaoke, and we'll see what happens with that. Wednesday, thank God for Bitcoin's the Stackathon Hackathon's happening Wednesday. Pleb party with Anders. Thursday after the conference will be a VIP party. VIP tickets get you into everything, by the way. Friday night, converting the Barker Hangar into a nightclub. Saturday, beach party, VIP wrap party as well. Um, the winner of this week's free ticket giveaway is Bitcoin Gus. Bitcoin Gus, congratulations, man. That's at Gus21 McAlderon. Uh, we will also be getting in contact with you by email to ticket out to you. So congrats, man. Um, that's a giveaway that we're doing every week. We're going to continue to do it moving forward towards the conference. If you want to enter to win, go to swan.com slash PB giveaway. If you're considering a VIP ticket, you can shoot me a DM. I have a special discount code for you. If you're already a Swan client and have a rep, talk to them about a special discount code. Okay. So we've got maybe... 10, 20 more minutes before we start Swan Private Macro. There's a couple of other cool headlines that uh, we can hit here. Um, you guys know how we were talking about over time, eventually we were going to start to see Bitcoin companies and Bitcoin-related entities buying banks? Well, here's one. Bitcoin Group considering buying centuries-old German bank Bloomberg Law. Bitcoin Group SC, a crypto-focused... It's Bitcoin, not crypto, guys. A crypto-focused investment holding company based in Germany is reportedly considering purchasing local bank, Bankhaus von der Hyatt. Bloomberg Law reported on the news Thursday. Oh, yes, it's a Bankhaus, yeah. But yeah. It's a German or Swiss, <laughs> maybe. Hmm. Sign of the times. You guys think that's going to be a trend more and more? It's a smart move instead of just trying to go like the Caitlin Long route and try to create a bank and then, you know, go the charter and all that stuff. Yeah, right. Seems to make more sense. Just buy one. It's already got its licenses and stuff, right? Especially as they start to fail over the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah. You're buy, be able to buy one. Sorry, Alex. Buy one and partner with Nidig, right? And you got to go. I think you're ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Just to, part you just have to gut all of their accounting systems and everything in order to uh, facilitate Bitcoin, probably. Well, I mean, it's one of those things. If you're if you're a business and your your business model becomes obsolete, which it's a thing, you know, every seven years, it's it, there's a saying. Every seven years, you have to basically completely reinvent your business, otherwise, you're going to be obsolete. So, look at what Visa Mastercard's doing. You know, that still blows me away. I know we've been talking about that a lot, but I, I mean, I think it's important. Like central paint plank. It's going to be a central plank of the Visa MasterCard business model, digital assets. That's that's mind blowing. They did, Alex, they didn't name Bitcoin specifically, Ben. You may have it on your list, but did you see where Walmart, some executive, right, or something from Walmart suggested that, you know, in their terms, crypto is going to have a important uh, role to play in the future. I don't know, man. I think all these guys don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They just like <laughs> to say buzzwords. Yeah. No, I think you're right, actually, especially in the Visa MasterCard situation. They're like, they're seeing this existential. It's kind of like, you know, they're the dinosaurs 
roaming the earth and they've ruled everything for so long and they look up in the sky and there's this gigantic meteor coming and they see it and they're like, oh no, what are we going to (laughs) do? And they're all like, yeah, we're going to be meteor people. We're going to do the meteor thing. They don't even know how, maybe, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I work for a pretty big company and we're still like trying to figure out how to incorporate blockchain into the business model. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> you're wasting so much fucking money and they won't listen to me. So I don't know. It's like, I, I just think people are just still very, very distracted and, and unaware of, you know, what the actual fucking innovation is here. They're still trying to chase, you know, whatever, like, the, you know, the... the <sighs> You have your the talking, the talking points, yeah. right? What was that? You're documenting those grievances and the fact that, like, you're st- trying to tell them it's like, hey, this is a like, massive waste of money and time. Yeah, I mean, I don't even care. I like, I, you know, I'll, no, I'm, you uh, should though. Like, keep a portfolio of like you being right, so you can go back and be like, hey, you could have paid me like even X amount of dollars to tell you that I was correct and that you were wrong, and you would have saved this much. True. Very true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much they're spending on it. To be honest, I hope not very much. I know Probably like too even, much. There's a couple devs, and you know that I know who, who are <laughs> trying to do like supply chain stuff. I was like, guys, what the fuck? All right, because you do know more. It is your job to kind of to document this and remind them that you're the one to be trusted, not them. You, they, they have to have self-doubt before they start listening. Yeah, I kind of like just working in the background. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm more of a worker bee type of dude. I'm not trying to, like, make a name for myself here. I'm just trying to make sure money and stack sats and then, you know, retire, are these, retire early. Are these, are these devs, like, computer science degree people? Don't they understand that Blockchain is just such a horrible fucking thing for Peter. Not in many cases. Not in many cases. You'd be surprised how far behind IT people are on this stuff that I've run into. Mostly, they're mostly data scientists, so they're they're not even like you know uh, trained in computer science specifically. They're mostly like coming at it from a different angle. You know what? It was a huge epiphany. Epiphany to me this week is that. Um, all of the, you know, Bitcoin has launched this completely new, basically it's going to be the next internet in my mind. It's completely changed the paradigm because you're starting to see it, not just Bitcoin is a, is a savings payment, you know, let's separate money from government, kind of a decentralization technology, right? But you're starting to see it in other areas, like impervious AI, like that browser, it's, the idea is that it's completely decentralized. There's no more central point to collect and sell your data. It's all individual peer-to-peer riding over lightning. And then I want to get, get a MacBook just so I can use Impervious. Me too. I've been thinking about that for the last two days, actually. Really? Like, same thing. I've been like, damn, I'm so tempted to just go and buy a Mac just so I can install this freaking thing and test it. Because it's marking a huge shift, literally in the way... We do things on the internet. 
Like it's all been centralized, all the centralized databases with everybody's name and all their private information, all these things that keep getting hacked, gigantic honeypots of centralized data that's being resold where they want to know everything about you, you know, down to a super granular level. What are you doing all day, every day? They want to know. By the way, if you did that, right, if you got a Mac, there's a lot of other cool, uh, you know, um, Bitcoin tools that are, that are out there on Mac, none. You know, Nunchuck, which you've heard of, Blue Wallet, you could actually have on your Mac. You could have Bitcoin Core on there. So, yeah, it'd be pretty cool. I've routinely routinely voiced my grievances with Mark and their team. I'm like, guys, like, this is is really making me frustrated. Like, I want to use Impervious on my desktop, and I can't. You're going to make me spend money for Apple again. Oh, we're going to have them on the show next week, by the way. Yes been working on that for a while and we finally <laughs> through christopher calicott this week i was like hey christopher can you help us out man he's like boom made it happen <laughs> it's awesome yeah but that that thing about like um <clears throat> it's almost like they're now there's legacy there's going to be legacy it people now like we've been talking about there's legacy finance people who do not understand the new paradigm of finance because of bitcoin so i see the same thing happening in, in it now because there's going to be this huge group of people who doesn't understand the de- the whole decentralized framework but this is where it's going and i think it's going to be inevitable like if you have an option option a the government creeps on you and they they collect. I mean, and this could take a while. I'm not saying this is going to happen overnight. This could be a, you know, 10-year, 20-year transition. Shoot, look at how long it took for the internet to get to where it is today. But human beings are going to do what's in their own best interest, man. I know I will. And if you have a choice of having all your your data vacuumed and scooped up all the time and sold... And then they track every fucking little thing that you do and you have no privacy and they eavesdrop on your conversations. I mean, shit, your phones are fucking listening to you all the time. You ever wonder how those ads pop up? You're like, oh my gosh, my back hurts. Next thing you know, you got fucking ads everywhere about back pain solutions. How'd that happen? Well, not to mention like those companies like uh, like Facebook. It's like, no, we're not we're not listening to you guys while like you're not using the app on your phone. It's like. Yes, you are, because those ads roll through as soon as, like, you were just saying, Alex. Like, it's like, just get, like, everybody's just incentivized to lie. Lie or or mislead that they omit material information. So in the case of Facebook, I would say they're using metadata, and they can figure out. They don't even need your real data. They, they just can just rely on metadata to figure out what your guys are talking about. Um, because you're probably talking about your phone's going to be next to someone else's phone at dinner, and that other person was searching whatever terms and whatever gave up their data voluntarily, so they can figure out they, they can make good guesses. Um, Geolocation, all that. Exactly, exactly. The other thing I I just had a not epiphany, but I, a thought that I feel like a data scientist. So data scientists, they're smart. They know that what they're doing is, um, you know, at Google and Facebook and whatever, which have all the best or some of the best, many of the best data scientists, that they're kind of amoral. They're just kind of intellectually interested, want to make money. Maybe data science is more about the intellectual interest and working with a huge data set, which the NSA has and Google has and Facebook, and not so much the other companies, especially startups. Anyway, so on Wall Street, when I worked, 
there is one group. It's a tiny group that is just like the Boiler Room, Wolf of Wall Street. That those guys are assholes. They're kind of dumb, to be honest. And sharks, and they're preying on retail all the time. There's another group that were like former engineers and scientists and science majors who worked in derivatives and structured products and things like that. And they were what I would call amoral. They weren't doing it to um, rip people off, but the system is so rigged that it was inevitable that, you know, if Goldman Sachs or or uh, some big hedge fund is offering you $10 million a year to do something instead of, you know, doing whatever you're doing at a more um, noble bank that was like a credit union or whatever, then you're going to leave, right? And also the people are smarter and you work with smarter people, with better clients that ask smarter questions instead of stupid questions. So um, it's similar. And and both groups are benefit from the status quo and they're kind of amoral and smart and just interested in making money or interested in data science and working on big data sets. So they're not going to get they're not the type of people that will get Bitcoin naturally. The people that get Bitcoin naturally are people living in Turkey where there's high inflation. And as soon as you explain why, you know, these other things are scams and they've been scammed all their life, starting with the government, like having whatever over 80 percent inflation. The official rate is 80 percent, but it's much higher in practice. So it, it feels like um, the data scientists, people not to disparage them too much, but they're a little bit like the Wall Street people I used to work with. Interesting times, for sure, for sure. Good morning, Stephen Lubka. Good morning, Sam Callahan. What's up, Alex, Terrence, everybody? How's everybody doing? Good, good. good to see you guys. Good morning. What's up, guys? Hey, Sam. Hey, Sam, I think you did really well last night on that, uh, on that um, what the hell are we calling <laughs> that thing, the, the, the kickoff party thing. That was really funny. Yeah. I had some echo, but I do. I do think the most bullish thing that happened to Bitcoin was ETH going to proof of stake. I gotta say, in 2022, <laughs> that was an interesting question. I was like, man, there were so many things. How do you pick one? So, Sailor stacking what? on the stack chain. Is he right now? <laughs> No, no, he, he did. did. That was the most. That was the most bullish thing that happened to Bitcoin. Nice try, Peter. <laughs> Stack chain maximalist, Peter. <laughs> Peter is our very own resident Stack chain maxi and grumpy cat. Uh, John Har, good morning. Hey, good morning, everyone. Sorry, I'm a few minutes late here, but great to be here. It's all good, man. We were just all waiting for you. <laughs> now we can start. <laughs> uh, we have a good time, like the Swan Private Team. Like we, we're. I mean, we have a great relationship. We have, we have a lot of fun. So, um, anyway, so today is the Swan Private Macro Friday, as we usually do on Fridays, uh, featuring Stephen Lubka, the head of Swan Private. We've got Sam Callahan, who's our head of research. I call him our head of research. He calls himself a research analyst, but I think he's the head of research. And we've got John Har. Um, who is also uh, Swan Private, Managing Director Swan Private, and um, former Goldman Sachs. So let's go. I'm going to like hand it off to Stephen and John, and you guys can, like, what do you guys want to talk about? 
maybe let me let me start this with like a five minute kind of side topic diversion, but you'll like it. Um, so, Sam, you said you just said a second ago that the most bullish thing that happened for Bitcoin in 2022 was ETH going to proof of stake. And I'm wondering, have you guys seen I, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but basically what it looks like is there is this uh it's it's called flashbots and it's this thing called minor extracted value which is basically it's it's a software that the eth validators run that lets them make more money by kind of like arbitraging and front running transactions and it's and it 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 flipped into like ofac compliance mode so it is censoring it is essentially not allowing transactions with any coins that went through uh, the tornado cash, the thing they got sanctioned. And this is over 51 per, it's, it's over half of all transactions on the network now run through this piece of software because it lets them make more money. And so I saw this and like, this is this is this is the death of fungibility, right? Like this is like fundamental non-fungibility on the chain where you've basically got like black market coins and whitelisted coins. And like that is like theoretically kind of like a death knell for for fucking anything. Like because it's it's you you basically like become totally compliant if like the walled garden whitelisted coins are the only ones anyone will accept. And then the software is going to keep bending to whatever the regulations are. Like it's essentially state capture. And then what you have this last week is you have this, and I haven't read through the proposal in detail, but there was a bunch of noise that uh, the FTX guy, um, what's his name? Uh, Sam, Sam right? Bankman-Fried, yeah. That guy. Um he, he pushes this whole like secret, well, not secret, but he has this whole law agenda that like he's trying to propose a regulatory framework for all of the DeFi stuff. And it's basically just like OFAC compliance and block lists and like, you know, essentially just complete compliance. Um, and it really looks like, I mean, the, you know, I mean, you could obviously argue was it decentralized in the first place, but like just the total death of decentralization for that whole entire space. What do you guys think about that? Have you seen that? Yeah, I think this is this is what like Check Matey was trying to warn about before. If yeah. anybody watched that video, um, you're just it, the centralization risks were so high by moving to proof of stake by, you know, having these centralized entities. Um, Kind of control uh, the protocol, but it's, uh, it comes down to these flashbots. Um, you know, when you look at it, it's about like the relays. So I don't want to get into the nitty gritty. I don't know if we want to yeah. really get into that, but <laughs> basically, not. it's it's this increased centralization, and, and then watching them kind of argue, like Bitboy and Ryan Sean Adams argue about what Sam Bankman Fried was saying about what they should do and the regulations. It just shows that like it's become so centralized that what this ecosystem relies on is this regulation and what these large exchanges do. And that's the whole point is that you shouldn't have to trust any one of these organizations to decide on the protocol or what should be included in the blocks, what transactions should be included in blocks or not. Like that's censorship. And that's why it's like a death nail moving to this protocol. 
Yeah. And Stephen, I so you, I think, are more well versed in this than I am, but I think it would be worth chatting about if Bitcoin faced a similar issue where there were addresses that were um, sanctioned by some entity. How does Bitcoin deal with that? Is it or there still would be some headwinds to deal with? Um, you know, I, I think basically the takeaway from having chatted about this um, at least once with you was Bitcoin is more immune to this, but um, maybe not 100 percent immune to this type of behavior. You know, one example would be centralized exchanges could always um, block certain addresses from transacting. But would be curious to hear your thoughts about, you know, how how and why is Bitcoin uh, situated differently? So what makes this really tricky for ETH is the fact that you have this kind of consensus level. So like the actual validators slash miners slash block producers are running a software at the consensus level that censors transactions, right? That is kind of a different beast than just like a sanctioned address. Like the government says, hey, Bitcoin address one, two, three, uh, those are bad coins. Like anyone that accepts those coins is like, you know, breaking the law, right? They can do that. In fact, they've done that, right? And and that kind of just, you know, hits that's those specific coins at that specific address. Now, someone on the base layer of the protocol could still accept those coins if they wanted, right? And, you know, you, you, you run into practical issues, obviously. And like in practice, people probably aren't going to do that, but they could. Um, the issue is you have this A, so this like really fundamental base layer sort of software running that is just filtering out these transactions on like a protocol level but also like i mean you know anybody could just run coins through tornado cash like you could like john like you could log into fucking like you could go on coinbase you could get a you know some shit coins and you could run them through tornado cash and you could just like shoot them out at a bunch of addresses and those accounts are now tainted like those accounts are now going to be filtered out right so that is, you know, in one, like, that's, that's one difference. Um, and it's even, it's even more so than just the current state of affairs. It, it's, it sets a precedent and it sets a precedent where um, you have like base layer consensus making software that has agreed that any, any regulation that comes out of OFAC or any regulation that comes out of the government, they're just going to adapt to and adopt. And at that point, like, what do you have? Um, and I, I know I didn't really answer your question, um, but I wanted to kind of point out, like, what's different on, on the Ethereum side? Whereas, like, with Bitcoin, you know, it's basically like your challenge is, will the exchanges stop accepting the coins and what happens when that happens? And how much real political risk is there to like an individual who were who would accept those coins on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. Like if there's like a military squad like monitoring IP addresses and like, you know, airdropping on your house if you accept uh, one of these coins in a peer-to-peer -peer transaction, all right, that's pretty sticky. But, you know, barring stuff like that, there's still kind of a gray area there. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. Um... 
it, the, the process for complying with sanctions just seems to be a lot more streamlined <laughs> in Ethereum. Um, I'm not sure if that's what they were going for, but that seems to be what they ended up with. Automated. <laughs> yeah. They've automated sanctions. Yeah, only a few decision makers involved in complying with sanctions. Um, maybe if, if I could ask a naive question, just got thinking about um, some of these you know, Bitcoin addresses that may have been sanctioned in the past. Does anyone know the answer if one of those sanctioned addresses participated in uh, a coin join and there were, you know, X number of outputs? Is there any precedent for how the sanctioning entity, well, let's say it's OFAC or someone like that, do they say, okay, all of the outputs are now tainted as well? Does anyone know if there's any precedent on that topic? I do not. Yeah, there might not be, but that that's always that's been an interesting question to me is how and then, you know, where my brain goes with that is it becomes easier if it's, you know, 10 outputs and you just say the 10 people who participated in this, you're all tainted now too. But, you know, what if if the coin joins keep happening and then it's, you know, hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands. It just becomes a little ridiculous to say everyone that was ever linked to this one address is now tainted. Um Anyway, I'll, that's something I'll be looking into, but was just curious on, and that, on that topic. So that thing you just laid out of like you have these degrees of like connection or there's a better word for that. I'm, I'm blanking on it. But like um, that's the real like risk, like right, like that's the end game on this Ethereum automation is what happens when it's not just the address that received the coins, but it's any address that that address interacted with right? Like it starts spreading out until you have like just a material percentage of the whole network is essentially blacklisted and is essentially like non-viable. And at that point you've bifurcated the network into like essentially a corporate walled garden, like whitelist and just like this like weird, like black market thing going on. And, and just as an observation, I don't follow as closely what some of the very pro-ETH people do and say as, as maybe other people in this space do, but I, I follow it a little bit. You know, a lot of them seem to be very against this, but they just seem to, I don't know if they regret it just yet, but they don't want it to be happening. Um, so they're, you know, very against the censorship, but they seem unable to uh, realize what got them into this, this situation. Yeah, my most, I think, substantive critique there is that they're trapped by incentives. Uh, and what I mean by that is one of the reasons ETH has been able to like do so much, like let's call it experimentation, is because they have um, access to like a lot of capital from VCs. So you have all of these like companies that make these like, like apps on top of it. And that money comes from like regulated VC funds that fund it. And then what they fund is a corporation. It's a registered corporation that is essentially creating a protocol. Like for example, like Uniswap, like Uniswap is a company that has like, you know, built an app and the app just happens to be on a blockchain. And so if, if they were really going to try to resist 
if they were really going to try to not be compliant with this, all of those companies, I mean, they're just gone, right? Like they can't, they can't fund them. They can't raise money. They, you know, they, you know, employees are at risk. They're at risk of being, you know, you guys broke the law. Like, you know, they're, they're all these like points of attack. They're all these like, um, just weak points in the, in the protocol. But if you remove all of those centralized, like if you remove all the companies that are raising capital in a regulated way to build products, well, what's left? Like almost nothing really. Like you've got a base layer, right? You can send a transaction. Um, and so like, that's why I just, I don't find resistance credible. I, I think the nature in which the Ethereum world has funded itself and structured itself makes it essentially, uh, its hands are tied in being able to resist this. So it has to comply. It has to be compliant, uh, would be my take. Terrence, sounds, looks like you got something. Uh, no, I totally agree with that. I would also point out that um, because of the funding and maybe uh, other reasons, um, just Ethereum people being a move fast and break things kind of culture versus Bitcoin, which is extremely conservative, right? And we don't want to change things. But they do have engineering capacity that Bitcoin does not. And uh, don't listen to me. I haven't coded since college listen to maybe justin moon who's highly respected bitcoin core uh educator and developer and i posted in the nest uh, two tweets from him about engineering capacity because um some bitcoin maximalists who are not technical or even if they are they don't really understand what's going on in bitcoin core they are like bitcoin needs to be ossified and that's true in terms of the sensor resistance seizure resistance and um, fixed supply, but in terms of other things, you do want engineering capacity uh, to do some of the things that should be done to make the code, code base much less unwieldy, to document things better, to have better code review, to have um, you know modularization and refactoring and so forth. So I just posted that in the nest because I think there is, it would be good, not necessarily a, a need, I would say, but it'd be very, very good for Bitcoin to have more engineering capacity, and that requires resources. I know I talked about this a little bit yesterday, too, but I think it's a, one of the most undervalued and understated things in Bitcoin right now. Because yep. the devs, the, 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 the core devs are not good at marketing, or they shouldn't even be on Bitcoin Twitter, given all that trash-talking and hatred of devs and lack of appreciation that some corners of Bitcoin... I have not people here on stage or even in the audience realistically, but um, they shouldn't even be on Bitcoin Twitter, but they're, they're not good at promoting themselves. I feel like someone has to. Yeah. I mean, we'd always love to see more developers contributing to Bitcoin. That's obviously, you know, obviously great for the space and whatever we can do there, of course. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, so anyways, I just wanted to hit that real quick because I, the reason I brought it up is just, I, I, I really see it as a credible 
near to medium term threat. Like the way this plays out could have, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really try to make calls like this often, but I, I do think if this does play out in just like total compliance capture, it is, uh, I mean, it feels like a, a really pivotal moment. So something I'm watching closely and uh, as well as if this like package of regulation that, that FTX put forward gets passed, that's going to be pretty uh, fine for Bitcoin, but I think pretty monumental for completely kind of kneecapping everything else. But we'll see. So, um, John. Do you have any uh, do you have any topics for this week or Sam on the macro front? That's what we're here to talk about. I've derailed it. Uh, yeah, well, I, Sam, go ahead. Well, I'm pretty sure Japan just intervened in its currency again just now. So that's fine. Oh, really? Yeah, Japan is in a tough spot. When you look yeah, at Japan man. and their their debt levels, um, you know, it's funny because they've always been this country where people point to like MNTers and they're like, well, Japan could do it. But really, exactly. I think that it's it's just been kind of delayed. Um, they've kind of benefited from the rise of China, globalization, cheap energy, which has allowed them to kind of maintain <laughs> until now when things have really changed. And we're seeing how trapped that Japan is right now. As with one hand, they tried to pin yields down. And on the other hand, they're trying to prop up their currency at the exact same time. And I... I I posted this yesterday. It was like a gif, but it, it's like they're they're trying to plug holes with their hands with a cracking dam, and they're just trying to keep everything together. And they're now they're doing more stimulus uh, to fund their um, new new spending programs, and and inflation's starting to kick up there as well because they import a lot of their energy needs. And Japan is now now like an emerging market economy yeah. essentially. That's what they're trading like. So. I think that's one of the more interesting areas of the market that I've been watching is, is Japan and these other foreign central banks as they struggle with the strong dollar um, environment that we're in right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, they are really, really in a tough spot. Um, so maybe a question I'll ask. What is there? Is there any way that either of you guys can think of where... Japan avoids a significant financial crisis um, if rates from the Fed and the, and the dollar don't fall and weaken. Like if, 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 if Japan isn't handed a weaker dollar um, and lower rates, can you think of any pathway that they avoid a financial crisis at this point? I mean, I think it would have to be some kind of, uh, again, like an international coordination or cooperation with the Fed. They'll have to ask the Fed for help um, to buy their bonds or something like that. Um, I, it would have to be something like that. I, I really, I, I don't see it because once there's weakness like this and the market sniffs it out in the currency, I mean, there's these traders now just looking at these things, like licking their chops and and it's kind of inevitable at that point. So they can try to temporarily prop it up and they've tried to be all stealthy with their interventions. Now they're not really announcing when they're doing it, but you can see it in the chart and you know that they're kind of involved. And right now they're kind of usually they're selling their cash and their USD first out of their um, FX reserves. And once those get drained, then they'll turn to their treasuries 
And if they turn to their treasuries and start selling them to prop up their the yen, that's when the Fed and the U.S. Treasury would start to take notice because that'll cause uh, treasury yields to rise, right? Because uh, Japan owns trillions of dollars worth of treasuries. And so if they start selling those in mass, then that could wake up the Fed and Treasury because it actually starts to hurt them. You know, they're pretty selfish in their motives. Um, but that's, that's how I think Japan gets out of this. But right now, the way it's looking, um, we'll see if they can survive speculative traders who think they're the next George Soros want to get the title of breaking the Bank of Japan. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question, Stephen. And I don't think I have a good answer of, you know, what would, what, I, I think we can all agree they've done, made a lot of mistakes to get themselves into this situation. But, you know, the question is, what do they do now? You know, if you were transported to be in charge of the Japanese economy and fiscal situation and central bank, what would you do? Um, all the kind of, uh, quote unquote solutions that we're talking about for them, they're, they're just kind of like temporary band-aid solutions, you know, selling your reserves to defend your currency is like the definition of, of a band-aid solution. Um, so I would agree with Sam that, you know, when I think of like, okay, what, what turns around this current path that they're on it, I keep coming back to, it has to be some sort of, uh, coordinated currency revaluation where the dollar is not strengthening as much and U.S. rates are not rising as much. Maybe the mechanism is what Sam said, which is Japan and other foreign nations are not buying treasuries along with the Fed who's not buying treasuries. And then that causes issues in the U.S. treasury market. And then basically the Fed has to reverse course. And then that eases a lot of this pressure that Japan is under, but it, I have a hard time seeing how they get out of this otherwise. And then, yeah, Sam, it's interesting you brought up that it looks like the BOJ intervened, which it certainly does, because if you just look at the chart, it was USDJPY was going above 150 and then just quickly dropped to 147 handle. Um, so it definitely seems like someone intervened there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I think I think that's that's like basically three pathways, right? There's, um, you know, the Fed pivots, the dollar weakens, rates drop. That's pathway one, where maybe Japan avoids something really bad. Uh, pathway two is some sort of international coordination, swap lines, bailout, like you know, which is kind of, I mean, I mean, kind of an extension of pathway one, right? Like that's kind of a kind of weird, like a very weird sort of pivot. Not, I mean, you know, maybe not semantically, but that is just the Fed kind of bailing out Japan or maybe, I, I don't really think it's going to be anybody else except the Fed. But, um, and three is like maybe some sort of energy miracle, right? Like, you know, I think part of the problem with Japan is they're an energy importer um, and that's dollar denominated for them. So I don't know, like, you know, they make an unholy pact with Putin or something, but that's probably very unlikely. But I mean, barring that, I mean, they just look, I mean, it looks like one of the weakest major economies or maybe not weakest, but I should say like most fragile major economies right now. Yeah. And it's, it's important to know, like it's because of their debt levels and they're doing yield curve control. And so the rate differential between, uh, Japanese 10 years and say that the U.S. 10 year continues to widen as the Fed c- 
continues to in, increase interest rates. And so capital will follow the yield and there'll be large outflows out of the yen into uh, dollars and treasuries. And that's kind of why we're seeing such a devaluation of the yen, because if they want to save their currency, they know what they have to do. They have to start increasing interest rates, but they can't do that <laughs> because of the debt levels. And so that's why Japan specifically is extremely uh, in a precarious situation and their currency is what's getting uh, bled out from all of this because they're pinning their yields, they're not raising interest rates, and the rates, the differential, the spread between uh, the treasuries and the Japanese bonds continue to widen. And what kind of takes the pressure off that is the currency. And so the currency falls rapidly. And so that's what we're seeing. That's why the yen's down you know, over 20% year to date against the dollar. Um, as the Fed is on its tirade to increase rates to try to bring down inflation. So uh, all these foreign central banks have different dynamics, but they're kind of all suffering from the same problem when it all comes down to it, which is they're trying to figure out how to reduce their balance sheets and how to uh, get out of this easy money environment. And now there's inflation and they got all this debt and they have to raise interest rates to kind of try to combat this inflation but they're realizing they can't do that without breaking things. And so then their currencies are falling. And so they're all kind of the same. They're all a little bit different, but Japan seems to be in the trickiest of all three, in my opinion. And by three, I mean the UK, ECB, and the Bank of Japan. And so very interesting times. It all comes back to the Fed kind of wrecking uh, everything with their strong dollar and their policies and what's these uh, foreign countries are the ones really, really suffering right now. So things aren't breaking domestically just yet, but they're definitely breaking abroad. Awesome. So, uh, I, John, if you want to add something in there, uh, and otherwise I got another topic. Yeah, real quick. I think, you know, Sam brought up this interesting point about MMT proponents would use Japan as an example for many years. And I think there's just an interesting point to make here that, People can make claims like that for a long time and, and appear to be right or wrong um, before things play out. So I think there's just something to be said about these time frames here where, yeah, MMTers maybe seemed like they had a good argument because they're, you know, quote unquote, everything's fine in Japan. Look, it works fine. Someone I'm actually reminded of is uh, Peter Schiff, who I know is, you know, become like kind of a whipping boy of the Bitcoin community. But I have been following him for years, and he was calling the collapse of the U.S. housing market like since 2003 or maybe even earlier. And he was, quote unquote, wrong for many years until it actually played out in 07, 08, 09. And people, there's clips of people literally laughing in his face on TV when he tried to say that the subprime market was going to implode and all that stuff. So people can kind of make these, you know, claims and look right for a long time before it all comes unraveling. So I think that's just something to keep in mind here. So quick comment. Um, I just think it's really interesting. So I was, I was actually having a call. I was talking with uh, Troy, Troy Cross the other day for a while and we were speaking about a bunch of stuff and, and, and the topic of MMT came up and something that hit me that I, that I realized during that conversation is, and I, I don't know how interesting this is going to be to everyone but me, but if you really look at the assumptions of MMT, you can't separate it from the sort of like branch of postmodern philosophy that has decided that 
the constructs of society have no inherent reality or that the, the, the institutions, the things we create that are kind of socially generated um, basically lack any inherent tether to anything real, which is like not how money was viewed before. But the MMT is basically just saying like it, it works on like the underlying assumption like, hey, money's just points. It's not in any way like indexed or related or representative of like the real economy. It's basically just like an arbitrary accounting system. Ergo, like, you know, print it, do whatever. It doesn't matter. We're just balancing fucking scorecards. And that's just so a contradictory with earlier like epochs of monetary theory where, you know, the money is in like an intimate like symbolic representation of real world capital and real world economic activity, which is the view I subscribe to. Um, but like you almost, it's almost this way that like postmodern philosophy has infected monetary theory. And I just thought that was very interesting. Yeah, right on. I, what I, what I take away from that is a lot of people, you know, not, maybe not a lot, but some people, there's two different ways to go at MMT. You could say it's morally wrong, and, and I would agree with that because it's a centralized entity just manipulating people's wealth and saying we're going to create new monetary units, we're going to give some to these people and take away wealth from other people. I think that's morally um, indefensible. But then there's the intellectual side, which I don't think it's talked about enough, which is, I think hits on what you're saying, Stephen, which is, they've kind of ignored the fact that money is this tool for real world coordination. And they're just like completely ignorant of the fact that all of their monetary manipulation causes these massive real world imbalances, dislocations, malinvestment, whatever you want to call it. So I think the argument is just super easy because, you know, there's might be some things in this world which are like morally defensible, but not intellectually and vice versa. For me, MMT is just an easy one to throw to the side because it's both morally indefensible and intellectually indefensible. 100%. 100%. Terrence, you got your hand up. Uh, yeah, just real quick, um, back to what John was saying about Peter Schiff being wrong for years in a row, um, but then he was ultimately right. So people have been complaining that Japan should, you know, the bubble should burst or, sorry, all the money printing and their high debt to GDP ratio should be a problem since about 1990, 1991, when they first did quantitative easing and low rates and money printing. And here we are um, 32 years later, and they're still going with a massive debt to GDP ratio of about 240%, almost double where we are. So different demographics, uh, Lynn Alden has pointed out some differences that make the U.S. Um, more dangerous uh, to have high debt to GDP, including uh, things like um, just the fact that we have very high defense and healthcare expenses, um, thanks to Medicare and Medicaid and things like that. And so um, we are different, but maybe because we are the world's global reserve currency with better demographics in Japan, maybe um, we can sustain significantly more debt to GDP without breaking things too much domestically. Sam's absolutely right that there's been that the Fed's actions and raising rates have wreaked havoc and caused things to break abroad. Absolutely. 
So on that note, let's, let's come back to, um, we had some news about the fed this morning, um, or at least something resembling news. So did you guys see this thread of this? Uh, he's like the chief uh, economic correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and is, uh, you know, kind of considered. I don't I don't really like know the background on this guy. Nick T- T- uh, Tim Timoreos. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he's basically had this whole thread reading the Fed's latest comments saying that they're they're walking back the rate hike to 50 basis points. And it was this long thread and we saw yields drop uh, basically as that came out. And so he's kind of considered, at least from what I've gathered, that may be wrong, but kind of a Fed mouthpiece. Uh, did you guys see this? And what are your thoughts? I think that's, yeah, he's the, uh, he's got Jay Pollan's speed dial or something or vice versa. Huh. And it's funny because he they just leak leak what they want through him and it seems like every there's always one of those reporters at bloomberg or the wall street journal that takes that role <laughs> so that's what he's been and i think that's just a response to the recent bond market volatility that we've seen which has been very very abnormal um and i think they're a little freaked out and i think you you see that um not just with the fed but the treasury you know janet yellen came out I think last week or two weeks ago saying that she was starting to get concerned about treasury illiquidity the move index is rising, um, not to mention the foreign bonds are trading like the volatility there is just insane. Um, and so I think they're a little freaked out. And so I think they're trying to calm it down a little bit and they're trying to get this message out that, well, we might do 75 bips next meeting, but then we'll do 50. And the markets are kind of reacting to that instead of a 75, 75, now it's a 75, 50. So that's what I think they're just trying to like calm things down right now because it's getting a little bit crazy out there in the bond markets. Yeah. What he's actually saying is it's going to be 50-50. Oh, he said 50-50. But he's saying November's going to be 50. Or at least they're trying to like set the potentiality for that. Gotcha. Well, it's, it's kind of the same thing, though. I think they're trying to manage emotions, manage expectations. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting. I thought it was 75 I might be wrong. No, um, no. I'm sure you're right. Good service. Yeah, it's also maybe a trial balloon. Yeah. But uh, either way, like regardless of like the specifics on that, the market definitely reacted to this. Um, And so it's interesting to see, you know, this is obviously just the very kind of first inklings. Like we have to watch and see if this builds and see if this turns into something more substantial. But, you know, it is, uh, you know, it's our job just to notice these things as they start to happen. I definitely agree with all those broader points being made. And uh, Sven Henrik had a great thread rant today um, where he highlighted just some of the Fed's prior guidance and then how it actually ended up playing out in reality. So it was just in June of this year. I'm sure people who follow the Fed remember that the first 75 basis point rate hike was a really big deal because it hadn't happened in however many years or decades and the Fed had all this <clears throat> excuse me, language coming out about 75 basis points is really uncommon. And I think after the first one, the market was like, oh, yeah, it's just this one 75 basis point hike. And then they're going to be back to 50 and 25. So now there's three in a row. The market is still expecting another one for four. Um, so it's really hard to trust or have any you know, reliance on the Fed's guidance 
And that, that's not a one-off. You know, 2018 and the infamous Powell pivot, um, they made everyone believe that they were going to hike rates, hike rates in 2019. But they ended up cutting them multiple times while unemployment was at 3.5% and inflation was at the, the target of 2%. So I, I do. it's one of these things where it's important to follow what the Fed says, but you know what they're saying today could end up what they actually do two or three months from now could end up being totally different. Um, but yeah, I agree with the broader points that were made that it seems like they are, I think a couple of things. One, they're kind of putting this out there to see how the market reacts to it. And then they're just trying to leave themselves open options because I don't think they want the market expecting one action and then they do something different and then the market reacts wildly, I think they prefer the market to kind of consider multiple options being open. So that's probably what is happening with this Nick Timoreos guy. How do you guys feel about um, opening it up for questions? We've got about 10 minutes left in the show. I figure uh, we could let people ask some questions if you, unless you have something else you want to hit. No, go for it. Zoom in. All right. Cool. I would like to uh, say that it's funny. Can I just say one thing? I just think it's funny that they leak this information to Wall Street Journal, and then you know that these big banks get the information first, and they make tons of money trading off this stuff before it becomes public. And I just think that's all bullshit. Yeah. And there you go, Alex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is so, bullshit. I mean, why would we ever think that the that the Fed officials would act in a way that's unethical. I mean, we, we could do a whole show on that, right? I mean, the latest one, not as bad as the others, but apparently Bullard gave a private speech and then other people said, oh, he shouldn't have done that. And, you know, if it's a one-off thing, like fine, but how many Fed governors now have been trading their personal accounts when they weren't supposed to, giving private speeches when they're not supposed to, and then the what like the the punishment for these people is like basically non-existent. Some of them just retire, you know, Dude. with what whatever profits they got from it. But it's just it, it's insane to me that anyone could believe them as an institution to do things that are sensible for managing the economy. But then just from like an ethical perspective, they they can't even check that box. It's just mind blowing. It's rife throughout the entire system, and it's a, it's a symptom yeah. of. Fiat dishonest money. I mean, have you seen Nancy Pelosi's ice cream drawer? Have you seen it? <laughs> she is a really good, good fund manager. <laughs> uh, she's amazing. God dang, she's good. Um, all right. If you're on the panel and you have a question for these guys, or you're in the audience, you would like to come up and ask a question, please feel welcome to do that. We'll bring you up. We'll be kind to you, I promise. If you want to ask a question in the chat, you can do so in Telegram group, t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. That's t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Yep. We have about 10 minutes left. So we'll do the Q&A thing, and then um, afterwards we'll give you guys some, some time to make some closing comments before we wrap. And if there's no questions um, right now, I definitely have a few macro comments I could add in. But um, anyone have any questions for now? Ant, did you have something? Uh, yo, I got a question. Sure. Let's go. <clears throat> so we all agree yeah. that, um, that Japan's just outright yield curve control, right, on JPY. 
Um, why aren't we seeing Bitcoin rise with the tide of that liquidity in that market? It sort of just looks like similar chart to the dollar. And if we think that Bitcoin would would skyrocket with outright yield curve control here in this country, any any ideas as to why it's not happening over there? I th- I mean I think I think you kind of I think the answer to the question was kind of in the question and it's it's cuz it's not happening over here would be my my gut, right? It's I think right now it's like Japan's kind of an outlier in the extent of their interventions. Um, I think a, I mean, if you saw the same thing in the U S it would be a completely different story or B, if you saw the same thing in like Japan and South Korea and the Eurozone and Brazil and like, you know, I think you could get a basket of these like non U S countries. And if they went into that, I think you could see the effect, or I think you could see the effect pretty much just from the U S doing it. I would just wager, and this is kind of just a gut response, but that Japan alone is just, it's not enough to tip that needle, especially against like a, you know, an environment that's still tightening otherwise. Word, word. Does it, does anybody know what the kind of the cultural relationship is to Bitcoin in Japan? Is it, is it a thing? Is it not? From what uh, it's not I a know. big enough of a thing given Mount Gox <laughs> and the lack of, um, high Bitcoin prices and in light of what you just said, Village, given all the yield curve control and money printing and debt to GDP, you would think that Bitcoin's price would be a lot higher because they are the world's biggest, third biggest economy, albeit a distant third to US and China. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I just looked this up. Um, Ownership is uh, significantly lower as a percentage of population than the U.S. Um, and and those those metrics are pretty skewed, I think. Right? I think the U.S. number is something like fourteen percent now. But that you know, a lot you have to understand. Like a lot of those people probably have like ten bucks a Bitcoin on Cash App or something, or hundred bucks a Bitcoin. Right? Like it's not people that are like really deeply in it. Um, and like the Japan number, including that, is only four percent. So four compared to 14. So I think significantly less penetration. One thing cool. worth worth noting, which is kind of interesting, I just looked it up. Um, Bitcoin never broke the all-time high from 2017 when priced in yen, um, priced in Japanese yen. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Wow. That was bizarre. Okay. That's a good point, though. Hmm. That's confusing. Um, right? Possible. I mean, I'm, I'm wait, 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 wait. No, it never, it never broke back below. Is what I meant to say. Oh, like okay. on the, on the <laughs> yeah. oh. <laughs> yeah, it did not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, thanks, guys. Good info. Appreciate it. Take it easy. Thanks for coming up, Run. Wicked. Thanks for causing aneurysms, uh, Danny. <laughs> good morning. Hello, guys. Well, uh, I have a question for you. I'm from Argentina. I know well what inflation means. We had a couple of hyperinflation before. Um, I, I think that uh, maybe the the whole concept of the high inflation is it's not well understood uh, on the first world, I may say. Um, because I really don't understand and I hope you guys can help me with this. Uh, 
fairest rising uh, rates again, uh, again and again, but they never get to the point that uh, inflation rate in, in the United States or, or maybe in Europe uh, is reaching 10% a year. So what's the point of buying a bond uh, where you can expect maybe 4 or 5% yield when you have a 10% inflation a year? That's the question. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a couple scenarios where someone would decide to buy a bond that is yielding below inflation. So in real terms, it's a negative yielding bond. It's got a positive, you know, like interest rate, but it's below inflation. So the real return is negative. Um, one, they have to. So there are a lot of entities, banks and investment funds and insurance funds and pensions that are mandated to have a certain percentage of exposure to treasuries. So there are definitely like buyers that have to buy, that have to own, uh, that have to be structured in such a way. And so I think that's, 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 a, that's a large chunk of it. Two is you think that inflation is going to come down, right? So you think inflation's high right now, but uh, I can get paid four or maybe 5% to buy this bond. And I'm betting that inflation is going to be 2% in a few years, right? I, I don't believe that, but maybe somebody does. And so they buy the bond. They think inflation is going to come down. Um, and then the third scenario that comes to mind is you just think everything else is going to perform worse. You know, it's like you think, Stocks are going to be down. Real estate's going to be down. Other things you could own are going to be down. And like the bond might be negative, but it's kind of your best option. And that's, that's kind of a form of financial repression, right? Like that's when we get into like deep financial repression in markets, you know, you're in a world where like uh, people get kind of forced into buying these things, even though they're negative yielding. So those are three scenarios that come to mind. I don't know, John or Sam, if you have any other ones. Uh, I think you nailed that, Stephen. That was fantastic summary. And yeah, on the last one, um, you know, I think of it as basically a competition amongst investments. And even if, like you said, Stephen, you might lose money in real terms on the bond, if you're not comfortable buying anything else, and that's money that was going to be in cash anyway, or perhaps it's cash that you are going to be holding for a couple years but then you have some life event coming up where you need to spend the cash and you know that holding it in cash is going to lose you, you know, 10% of purchasing power. You say, all right, well, I'll take the bond, which I, and obviously you take on credit risk when you do that, but let's say you're comfortable with the credit risk. You might say, all right, well, I'll just uh, reduce my losses by a little bit and buy the bond. But I think that's a really important one to keep in mind is that it's, it's always a competition amongst investments that if one when and this is why when when uh, people are much more comfortable with stocks they pour money into stocks um, but yeah that I think Stephen you did a really great job of laying out why people tend to to buy bonds. Well, that means something coming from you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can you know give a ditto on the uh, institutions who buy bonds. That's what I did for most of my years at Goldman. Managed money for insurance companies. The vast majority, like let's just take life insurers, for example, we're talking like 80% or more of their portfolios are going to be in fixed income, just a fancy way of saying bonds. 
So even if they had a view that, hey, we want to own equities and real estate and alternatives right now, based on regulations, they, they literally just can't. So they've been gradually increasing their allocations to those things over time, but the vast majority of their assets are still in bonds, and, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, by hey, law, great, I think great response, Guy. Thank okay. you. Thank you very much. There's only one thing that I don't understand, I still don't understand, uh, in spite of your, your answers. They were great. But uh, why uh, Bitcoin had such an impact on prices uh, when Fed is uh, hiking uh, rates? I thought maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm actually wrong because Bitcoin was affected. But I thought the well, Bitcoiners and or maybe companies that hold Bitcoin uh, understood well what they what they bought. So why are they selling Bitcoin to buy bonds, even with negative yields? Yeah, great question. So a few things there. Um, so first, I don't think they are, right? So I don't think, like, you look at, like, companies like MicroStrategy, uh, companies like Square that bought Bitcoin. I mean, they haven't, they haven't sold it, right? They're not selling it to buy bonds, um, which then begs the question, like, um, and obviously, there's a million other smaller companies. There's a million individual investors. Um, price, right? So this is this is a question of like, so why is the price down? Let's say if most people, and we'll make this an assumption, but let's just say, let's say if most people weren't selling, why or how could price go down? And that's essentially because like prices are kind of set on the margins, right? Like if. 99% of Bitcoin owners aren't selling, but the 1% that are selling are willing to sell for $10,000, then that's the price it's going to trade for, right? It's, it's the price that the last trade was willing to go at. And so this question of why, you know, why did this rate hike, why did this financial compression have such an impact on Bitcoin? I actually, I, I wrote a whole article on this that you might enjoy. And uh, maybe um, one of you guys, um, the Swan team, if you could throw that in the nest, I actually don't know how to work the nest. So if you could throw my article in there. But um, the article basically covers like, what are the drivers of Bitcoin? And um, what, what I've argued is that Bitcoin is indirect response to the rate and pace of monetary expansion. And so when the money supply is expanded, when rates are lowered, when currency is created, and even when asset prices go up for financial reasons, right? So I, I make the argument that uh, stocks and housing are de facto, like they're um, in practice, if not in theory, they're part of the money supply. Most people's net worth in America is denominated in the dollar value of their portfolio, not how many dollars they own. And so when you see asset prices have a, you know, you know, multi-trillion dollar decline, um, you know, that is a contraction in the liquidity, in the money supply, in people's preferences, people's willingness to hold more assets or to hold cash. Um, and so Bitcoin, when everything's expansionary, uh, it outperforms uh, all other major asset classes. But when the monetary... Uh, the, the when the money supply is contracting and we're seeing 
QE turned off. We're seeing tapering QT turned on. We're seeing interest rates rise. We're seeing asset prices fall. Bitcoin's going to contract, right? Like it's going to contract because it's in conversation. It's in relationship with fiat, uh, at least at this stage in its evolution. So, you know, to me, it, it was consistent that Bitcoin did fall as we entered this big monetary contraction, just as I'm not going to be surprised that as soon as this period ends, Bitcoin will be the best performer. Can I just have a closing comments here? Because I just want to piggyback on some of this because... um, Danny, you asked like, why would somebody want bonds with inflation roaring right now? And I think it's partly because people have been conditioned to go to bonds in times of, uh, you know, uncertainty and risk. They're, they fear deflation still. Inflation hasn't really been around for so long. And a lot of these investors, this is where you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to long bonds and, you know, wait for a recession to come. And then the Fed cuts rates and then those bonds benefits and it helps balance out the portfolio. But they haven't really thought through what happens if if inflation doesn't come down and who's going to want to own 30-year bond, 20-year bonds with that inflation risk if CPI is still high and the Fed pauses at, you know, four or, or, or four and a half or something like that, who's going to want that? And so that could be a situation where yields could continue to spike because people start to realize like, oh, I actually, there's some risk here in these quote-unquote risk-free bonds um, and, and we're going to move to something else. And so in that scenario, I think you could see part of the money that's held in bonds traditionally start to flow to other assets, including Bitcoin. But I think it, this is all so new, all this inflation and things have just changed so quickly that people are still using previous tactics to kind of protect themselves when really it's a changed environment and it might not provide the perfection, protection that they're used to. So um, I just wanted to add that because I think... I think that's important. I think people are just still thinking that this is maybe the market of the last 10 years, you know, 15 years, 20 years, where you're supposed to go to bonds in times of safety. Um, but, you know, right now with inflation rising, who knows if, if, if it'll ever come down like that and, and the yields will come down and they'll actually benefit. So, um, yeah, but thanks for listening, everybody. That, that'll be my closing comments. <laughs> All right, cool. So let's finish up with some final closing comments from Stephen and John, and then we're going to wrap. We're at the end of the show, guys. Yeah, I think final comments is just this is a this is a unique environment, right? Like I, I think there's a there's a notable difference between the current bear market and previous bear markets for Bitcoin. Um, I, previous bear markets, while maybe accompanied by like a moderate downturn in stocks and other financial assets. Um, the previous bear markets were more idiosyncratic. They were more specific to Bitcoin. They were just Bitcoin related, right? Like Bitcoin had had a big hype cycle and, you know, there was a little bit of a shift and people lost confidence. This time I, I see it as very different. And I mean, it, you know, you just, you look at the landscape and you see a generational moment of financial instability. Um, uh, Sam on our, uh, we had a, we had a, an event for private clients last night, and he, he, he basically made the point that to find a worse year for government bonds, you have to go back to like the Mississippi bubble or some of these like, like really older financial crises. Like 
the drawdown that sovereign bonds have seen this year is without parallel in modern memory. Um, it really has been a profound uh, moment. And obviously stocks haven't done well either. And, you know, inflation is high. And so there's just really widespread financial instability. And like previous Bitcoin bear markets, they weren't set against this backdrop. So you theoretically had people who were sitting on portfolios that were up in a huge way in other assets that, you know, would rotate cash and buy Bitcoin. And I think, I think people, you know, that's, you know, at least reduced. It's not that that's not happening at all, but I think there's more pressure there than in previous um, Bitcoin bear markets, which is one reason I think just watching this macro environment is just more important now if we're trying to determine, you know, what happens with Bitcoin, when does it turn around, than even, you know, I think in previous in previous bear markets. All right, John. Yeah, I'll be brief here. Um, there was a, an interesting uh, macro conversation where a guy named uh, Louis Vincent Gav gave um, a really interesting talk, but there was one thing I wanted to highlight, and we can maybe talk about this next week, depending on what comes up in, in the next seven days. But the U.S. is fighting a lot of different battles at the same time, and he listed them off as Russia, China, OPEC, climate change, he listed those four, and I think the fifth would be they're fighting CPI inflation. So that's just something to think about, that the U.S. has a lot of big battles going on all at the same time. And because of that, there's a good chance that some of those um, are going to have to give. So I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Maybe that's something we can talk about next week, but I thought that was an interesting uh, topic for, for people to think about. Yeah, that's perspective for sure. All right, guys, really appreciate you guys hanging out today. That was a great discussion as usual. Uh, and that is the wrap. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry to chill, talk about what's going on with Bitcoin, and a great place to learn about Bitcoin. We do it live every Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, roll for two hours if you, on Twitter spaces. If you can't catch the live show, you can catch us on a podcast. On Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere you get your podcast, you can throw myself or Swan Bitcoin to follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of the show, my crew, and Shane Sats for Life, producer Jacob. I am your host, Alex Danzik. I work with Swan. If you want to know more about Swan, shoot me a DM. In fact, you can shoot Steven a DM or Terrence a DM or John a DM. All these guys will be happy to be help you. Um, I'm sure Sam will too, but that's not his main job. His main job is looking stuff up and writing amazing research papers. Anyway... Thanks again to the speakers. Great time uh, to all the speakers who come on the show on the regular. Appreciate you guys. Admire what you do. Spending your personal time to bring this message of this bright orange future to all the peoples. This is what we call getting on a mission. If you don't know what that means, hang out. You'll figure it out. Love all you guys. Everybody have a great day. Go out there and crush it. <laughs>